This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word, to reflect upon what you have revealed to us, what has been written down and preserved under the oversight of God the Holy Spirit down through the uh, centuries so that it can inform us, it can challenge us, rebuke us, and teach us how to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Father, we pray that as we study today that uh, this topic that is often difficult for people to apply, that you will help us to see how we need to apply it and that we need to apply it and how to do it in a correct biblical manner. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we've come into Matthew chapter 6 and what has been called the Lord's Prayer. Others, as I pointed out, call it the um, Our Father, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, uh, also known as the Pater Nostra. It is also referred to by some Protestants as the Disciples' Prayer or the Model Prayer, often in an attempt to clarify the fact that this isn't the way Jesus prayed, but is a pattern or a model that Jesus gave his disciples. Again, I want to point out just that we always need to be reminded that that the context is so important here, that as Jesus is teaching to his disciples, he's teaching within the context of the message that that began with John the Baptist's ministry and is continuing in this early part of Jesus' ministry, and that he will that, that will be part of the ministry of the uh, disciples as he sends them out and restricts their ministry to the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Now that's important because what we see in this initial phase of Jesus' ministry is that it's targeted to the Jewish people, to the Israelites, in light of Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament promises related to the kingdom. So when John the Baptist showed up and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this is a is new revelation in the sense that it is suddenly saying that the promise that has been there since the Torah, since the Pentateuch, is now about to be fulfilled, but there's a condition, and that condition is that the people have to turn to God away from uh, idols, away from their uh, negative volition, turn to God in obedience. And so 
Jesus reiterated that from John the Baptist, and now he's brought his disciples together to teach them related to the kind of righteousness necessary for the kingdom, not just a positional righteousness that is ours when we trust in Christ and we're justified by faith alone, but the experiential righteousness that should follow that as a person, as a believer, lives his life in obedience to God, fitting the pattern of the Old Testament law that God would bring these blessings upon Israel if they walked in obedience to the law. And so Jesus is giving this interpretation of the law. So the whole context here is important to understand within this message of the kingdom. Now, <clears throat> the view that I, I take on the, the Sermon on the Mount is called the the interim period, the interim kingdom view, and that is that the kingdom isn't there yet, but this is what believers should see uh, developed in their own lives spiritually in view of the coming of the kingdom in preparation for the kingdom. They're still living in a time when there is uh, not the kingdom yet. There's still sin, sin on the earth. That's why in the uh, Lord's Prayer, one of the first... Um, uh, prayers to God, one of the first petitions is, thy kingdom come. It's not there yet. The reason I'm emphasizing this, and this is part of a lead-in, we won't get there for a while, but when we get to the kingdom parables in Matthew 13 especially, there's a lot of confusion over that. Jesus is is teaching there about the, 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 the description, the characteristics of this interim period until the kingdom comes. All of the kingdom parables, we're going to touch on a couple of them this morning, all of the kingdom parables relate to Israel. One of the great errors that we see among some uh, uh, pastors and some dispensationalists is that they try to apply some of the things in the kingdom parables to the church, and they focus on Israel because the offer of the kingdom is for Israel. It's a Jewish kingdom where The Messiah will come and rule and reign over the kingdom, over the land, the totality of the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he will rule from Jerusalem. So we have to keep that in mind in terms of why Jesus is teaching this. This is in light of this message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is uh, is here. So part of this involves his prayer. We've looked at the prayer a key element in the uh, <clears throat> in the prayer is is related to forgiveness and we go back to the prayer we see that there is a kingdom orientation to the prayer we saw that the prayer uh, that god's name would be hallowed is specifically related to uh, a passage in in and various teaching in the old testament that God would cause his name to be sanctified on the earth when Israel was restored in regeneration to the kingdom. So that has a a future orientation to that, that this will occur only when the kingdom comes. The second request is that your kingdom come. And the third is that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That will only occur when the kingdom comes. And then there is a prayer for the present time to uh, provide for us our daily bread, sustain us logistically each day. And then the second uh, petition is to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, I focused on that last time, saying that this idea of debt 
is as an idiom within rabbinical thought that sin was considered to be a debt against God and that forgiveness is a cancellation of the debt. And we're going to see that a little more today because the, even the word that we use for forgiveness, the Greek word for forgiveness, uh, afiemi, is a word that literally means to can, and originally meant to cancel a debt or to wipe out a debt. So this sort of economic a concept is applied to the cancellation of sin. Where else do we see this? We've studied this in the past. What's another word in the um, in our vocabulary describing salvation that is also an economic word? It's redemption, the payment of a price. And so uh, as God teaches us about what occurs in salvation, he uses not only legal language such as justification, but also economic language such as redemption and forgiveness in order to help us understand what happens at, at this time. Now, in Matthew six twelve, there's this emphasis on forgiveness. When we come back to our and look at our the two verses we're focusing on this morning in verses 14 and 15, the focus there is an expansion of why this kind of forgiveness of one another is important. So obviously Jesus, after giving this pattern for prayer, at the end he said he goes back and he reiterates what he has said and adds to what he has said about forgiveness, making a point about that that we should pay attention to. Now, one thing that I wanted to point out at the end last time, uh, one person came up and asked me a question about this, and and I was stressed stressed for time at the end and didn't mention this. If you're using a uh, New King James Bible or King James Version, or you probably memorized the Lord's Prayer at some point uh, in your life, The end of verse 13 reads, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But if you're using a New American Standard Bible uh, translation, uh, I mean a a New International Version translation, NET uh, translation, uh, ESV, any of the, quote, modern translations, then you do not have that phrase at all. Uh, New American Standard puts it in brackets, some of the other versions put it into a, a sidebar column and will say the oldest and best manuscripts do not contain this. They, that reflects a view of textual criticism that the oldest is the best. Uh, I challenge that. A number of people challenge that. I think the superior view of understanding differences in the text is the view called the majority text view, which is that the, the, the reading in the majority of documents, all things being equal, is more than, more than likely the correct reading, that there are two or three manuscripts uh, that were found in the, the area of, of uh, Egypt, which is a very dry climate, which is conducive to preserving ancient manuscripts, and uh, these were written in the late in the late third fourth century, and you know, Egypt was also an area where there was heresy and some other problems. But the view that a large number of scholars take is if any two of those agree, doesn't matter if they're the only two that agree. If they agree over against five thousand other man- ancient manuscripts, they're right, and the others are all wrong. 
that's been the popular view since the late 19th century. I don't agree with that. I think that the majority text view is superior, and the majority text view includes this. We're going to see another place where this occurs today in our study. So just a review, there are the, the opening address, Our Father Who Art in Heaven, and then there are three clauses that express the desire in relation to bringing in the kingdom, and then three petitions for current day needs, and then where we are today is in those next two verses, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, dealing with a further explanation about forgiveness. Here Jesus says, after going through the prayer, he says, if you forgive men their trespasses. Now this shows that this is related to, uh, he's talking about forgiveness. Here he uses the word uh, paraptoma, which is translated, it's it, trespass, it's a violation of a command, violation of a law that that is clearly used as a synonym for a debt that we saw back in, um, back in verse, uh, verse 11. Excuse me, verse 12. And then the Lord says, But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So what we see here is an important truth, that it's not just a matter in terms of forgiveness of our sin, of confessing our sin, but that if you harbor mental attitude sins of bitterness, of anger, of resentment, of uh, revenge, motivation, any of these things towards someone, when you are coming to the Lord in prayer, then your confession of sin is immediately nullified by your lack of forgiveness to others. I want you to direct your attention back to verse 12, where Jesus said that the petition to God for forgiveness is forgive us our debts as, that means in the same way as, just like we forgive others. So if you are not forgiving of others, then your request through confession of sin for forgiveness from God will go uh, unmet. So we have this this important truth, and it's not just taught here, it's taught in numerous other passages in the New Testament, but ones that are not always emphasized when we discuss forgiveness. In this slide, I'm emphasizing pointing out the words that are used here for forgive. Uh, the verb afiemi uh, is used here uh, in, in two forms, the past tense and the future tense. But both of them, I mean, but this word means to forgive, to cancel, to wipe out. It means, uh, in some sense, to forgive a debt. Now, in the past, we've studied this in terms of four categories of forgiveness that are taught in the Scripture. The first has to do with forensic forgiveness. Forensic is a legal term. If you watch any of the the various uh, crime scene shows that are on tele television, whether it's CSI or NCIS or any of these others, you're familiar with the word forgiveness, I mean forensic. And forensic has that idea of having to do with with a legal issue. And this is how we describe a positional our absolute forgiveness, uh, this takes place in relation to God. So it is defined as uh, forgiveness directed toward God where the justice of God cancels the debt of sin uh, for all mankind without distinction. 
This is related in especially Colossians 2, uh, 12 through 14, that the debt of sin, as it's sometimes translated, actually the word debt isn't used in the past passage. It says the, handwrit- the, the handwriting against us or the certificate against us uh, using this kind of Im- imagery of a, of a bill or indebtedness, that this is wiped out at the cross. We'll look at that verse in just a minute. That's the first category that uh, of forensic forgiveness, and it's directed towards the character of God. At the cross, all sin for all mankind was paid for. And so that is, uh, is forgiven at that point objectively in relation to the character of God. Then the second category of forgiveness is positional. Positional, this applies as the application of forgiveness to only those who are believers, only those who trust in Christ. So what we see in the first category is that for everybody in the world, whether they ever accept Christ or not, whether they ever believe in Jesus or not, their sins are paid for at the cross. That is also referred to as as uh, uh, unlimited atonement. Jesus paid the sin for all. But it is not applied or is realized in the life of an individual unless they believe in Jesus. And at the instant that you believe in Jesus, then your sin is positionally and totally forgiven in relation to God. And so we refer to this also as a positional truth or positional uh, positional forgiveness or positional righteousness that we have because of our position in Christ. This is seen in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 and Colossians uh, 2.14. Then we have experiential forgiveness in 1 John 1, nine. This is what happens when we confess our sin. We've sinned, we've committed some sin, we immediately say, Lord, I did X, Y, or Z, and we are forgiven in terms of our day-to-day ongoing experience. We have positional forgiveness in terms of salvation that can never be lost, but when we sin, it's like being a member of a family. As a child, you disobey your parents, you're not kicked out of the family, but there is no longer that rapport that you once had with your parents until that sin is resolved and that disobedience is resolved. And at that point, then the rapport is restored. And then the fourth category is uh, relational uh, forgiveness, relational forgiveness. And relational forgiveness has to do with forgiving one another, forgiving one another. So let's go look at a couple of these verses I described referred to Colossians 1:14 talking about positional forgiveness Paul says in whom the whom refers to Jesus Christ in the previous verses in whom we have redemption through his blood what does redemption mean it means to pay a price for something to purchase something so it's an economic term uh, we have redemption through his blood the term his blood refers to his uh, spiritual death on the cross doesn't mean he bled to death on the cross. In fact, in crucifixion, you bleed very little. If you're bleeding, if you're bleeding out, then, then that would be a very quick death. And the whole purpose of crucifixion is to cause someone to go through unimaginable pain and horror and suffering and to extend it as long as possible. Sometimes 
uh, crucifixion would last two or three days. So there was very little bleeding that occurred. When we read in the Scripture the blood of Christ, uh, saved by his blood, things of that, that's an idiom representing death, a person who died sheds his blood. Genesis 9, 6, one of the earliest references or uses of this phrase says that whenever someone sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. It's a an idiomatic way of referring to a violent death. Jesus could not have died in a peaceful manner. He couldn't have just had a, had a heart attack and died. He couldn't have just walked down the street and stroked out. Uh, he couldn't have just walked down the street and died. Uh, It was a violent form of death because it was a penal death. Uh, The way theologians have described the atonement is a penal substitutionary death. Penal is, it's a punishment. So his punishment on the cross in terms of his physical death is a picture of something else that's happening in the spiritual realm, and that is that God is judging him, punishing him for the sins of the world. And that occurred between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on that day when darkness covered Golgotha. And it's at that point that the justice of God imputed or credited to Jesus Christ all of our sin so that he paid for it. He who knew no sin, the Scripture says, was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So that's redemption through his death. You might want to translate it that way. In whom we have a payment price made through his death. That would be a way of translating this verse. And then there's an appositional phrase. An appositional phrase is a second phrase that explains a term used previously. And that second phrase is the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is talking about what happens in terms of of that redemption that we have in Christ Redemption is a economic term meaning purchase. Forgiveness is an economic term meaning to wipe out or to cancel a debt. The same thing is said in Ephesians 1, 7, same terminology, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul states this twice in those two epistles, which were written close together and have many parallels in them. So that's the... That has to do with the understanding forgiveness in terms of of positional forgiveness. And then the verse that I talked about earlier, one we studied in detail when we went through Colossians, is in Colossians 2, 13, and 14. This further expands on our understanding of forgiveness. And this is an important verse to understand. It's difficult to translate it into English in a way that captures the grammar in the original Greek, because it's loaded with participles. And you have to understand how these participles relate to the main verb. Participles are either used adjectivally, like John the Baptist. The Baptist is a is a adjectival participle. Literally, it's John the Baptizer. It's describing something about John. Sometimes we read in scriptures, the one who believes... That's usually a, a, a participle used as an adjective. Uh, if it's used as an adjective, it has a noun with it. But a lot of adjectives are used adverbially. That means they modify the verb. So you've got to pay attention to the verb, and you have to pay attention to the tense of the verb and the tense of the participle, because if the, uh, the participle is, um, for example, in the aorist tense, 
then that means the action of the participle comes before the action of the main verb. If the participle is in the present tense, that means the timing of the action of the participle is at the same time as the main verb. If the participle is in a future tense, that means that the action of the participle occurs after the action of the main verb. So that's important to understand that. And an adverbial participle can have a lot of different senses. It can be causal. It can be explained manner or means. It can explain time, either when or after or before. Uh, and you have to just sort of, and nothing objectively in the text tells you these things. You just sort of have to uh, do some word substitution to figure out um, what the best uh, nuance is that makes meaning in, this, in the text. So in verse 13, uh, or excuse me, in, in verse 13 you have in the second line, he made you alive together with him. That's the main verb, talking about our regeneration. So everything else that is said in verses 13 and 14 has something to do with describing how, or the, how God regenerated us or the circumstances surrounding our regeneration. In verse 13, Paul says, you being dead. Uh, and so this is a concessive participle. It's describing the circumstances that occurred at the time that we were made alive with him. We could translate it, though you were dead, even though you were dead, uh, when you were dead or while you were dead. Uh, when or while would be a temporal sense, though would be a consensive sense. Both of those are true and would emphasize the fact that at the time that we were saved, first we were spiritually dead in our sins and trespasses, Paul uses those two terms in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 2, 1. Here he uses trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, which is an idiom for, this, for, for sin as well and being unsaved. Uh, so he's saying at that time that we were regenerate, we were spirit, first we're spiritually dead, then we're regenerate. So you were at that time spiritually dead or while you were spiritually dead, God made you alive together with him. Now, how does God do that? What are the mechanics in that regeneration process? What other things happened at the time that we were saved? Well, then we have a, the next phrase, and in English it just says, he made you alive together with him and forgave you all trespasses. But but the, that's another participle there in Colossians 2, uh, 2.14, uh, stating, and, and so what he's stating is when he says, he forgave you all trans, trespasses, that describes something as well in relation to the main verb because it's an adverbial participle. So it would be he made you alive together with him by forgiving you all trespasses. That would make sense. He made you alive together with him when he uh, forgave you all trespasses. That would make sense as well, or because he forgave you all trespasses. In other words, he doesn't regenerate you without dealing with the sin. Now, that's important because when we talk about forgiving one another, it's not just an ignoring or overlooking of, of sin. That has, the sin has to be dealt with. If you just ignore, deny the fact that there are problems and you never address the problems, those problems are just going to repeat themselves over and over and over again. 
Forgiveness has to face reality and say, look, there's a problem. Just as you and I have to confess our sins to God and we receive forgiveness, in interpersonal relationships there needs to be a recognition if someone has offended us or sinned against us, we can't just say, oh, well, I'm just going to forgive you. There are little things, and we just overlook them, and that's true, but sometimes there are big things, and they have to be discussed and talked about and resolved. Otherwise, uh, you just end up aiding and abetting their continuing sin patterns. So here we see that, that regeneration is directly related to the forgiveness of our sins. That would be positional forgiveness. Now, the forgiveness of all sins, he regenerated you because now it could be, if it's causal, then it's talking about the fact that God wiped out these trespasses at the cross. I think that's what this is saying, is our present regeneration. If I trust in Christ right now, I'm regenerated. How can he regenerate me right now? Because he had already forgiven or wiped out all of my trespasses at the cross. Now he goes on to say in Colossians, uh, Colossians 2.14, he forgave you all trespasses and then you have that followed by another participle, probably causal, because he had canceled. He forgave you all trespasses because he canceled those sins. When did he cancel those sins? When you believed? No. Goes on to say when he nailed them to the cross. So that happened in AD 33. So when we understand this text, in 2.14 it's emphasizing he canceled it when he took that and when he nailed it to the cross. So there is a, that refers back to that initial forensic uh, forgiveness that occurred when Christ objectively paid the penalty on the cross. Then that forgiveness is applied to us positionally when we're regenerated, when we first trust in Christ as Savior, and at that point we, we realize that forgiveness. Then we have to move, move on from there in terms of our ongoing experiential forgiveness through confession of sin and also forgiving one another. Now, what's interesting is this word that's translated canceled is a word that means to blot something out. That's also a word that is used at times in economic context. It's used in Acts 3.19, where Peter is preaching to the Jews up on the Temple Mount again. He said, repent, therefore, and be converted. That is, turn to God. That's what converted is, epistrepho there. That your sins may be blotted out. That's the idea of wiping out something. It's also used idiomatically for a debt. And it's used in a verse many of us are familiar with, Revelation 21.4. God will wipe away every tear uh, from your eyes. So that is that this word that is used there uh, is a a word that is based on a Greek word alepho, which originally meant to rub something out. Um, it would have to do with if you got a, a something on your clothes and you were trying to wash out the stain, you'd be rubbing it out, and it came to eventually mean the canceling. A canceling of a debt. And so what we've seen is that there's going to be three words that are used in relation to forgiveness. Afiemi, the word we're most familiar with, the use, for example, in 1 John 1, 9, God will forgive us our sins. 
This is an economic word. It's used that way in Matthew 18.32, where in the parable, the wealthy landowner says, I forgave you all of that debt. He's talking about literal physical debt. This is talking about debt. This is talking about the one who owed him uh, 10,000 talents, something like a billion dollars. That emphasizes the act of forgiveness. Charizomai is another word that's used. That's the word that's used in in Ephesians uh, 4.17 for forgiving one another. This is a word emphasizing what lies behind forgiveness, which is grace, being gracious, showing grace or favor or kindness to someone. And then the word I just alluded to, ex alepho, which means to uh, wipe something out, to uh, it, it came to mean to plaster over or to rub something out completely, also used use for forgiveness. Now, a parallel passage to the one that we're looking at is in the Gospel of Mark, and I want, to, want you to turn over to Mark 11, Mark chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Now, here we have our Lord teaching this again in a different context. This is not in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, but he says the same thing. He says, and whenever you stand praying, so you're getting ready to pray. You're in the context, they would be praying in the temple or in synagogue. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against someone, if you're harboring mental attitude sins of anger, resentment, bitterness, uh, revenge, jealousy, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That's the command. Afiemi, wipe it out. Uh, cancel it, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. It's not saying that our forgiveness from God is dependent or caused upon our forgiveness to others. It's saying that if you're sinning, if you're harboring sin in your mind, and you're saying, God, forgive me of my sin, you're still sinning at the same time. Now, you can argue whether you ever get in fellowship for a nanosecond or not, but the reality is it's not happening, that you cannot ask God, come to God for forgiveness and confession of sin while you're at the same time harboring sin against others, and you're not forgiving them. So this, again, is correlative to what we studied in Matthew 6. In this passage, Mark 11:26 goes on to say, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So this is a second time that Jesus teaches this same principle that you have to forgive one another. Uh, in, in confession and re- being restored to fellowship with God isn't always just a matter of dealing with God and our horizontal, I mean our vertical relationship with God. But if things aren't right horizontally with other people, then we've got to deal with that as well. We've got to deal with it at the very least in terms of our own mental attitude sin dynamics. Now, if you're looking, if you have a New International Version, if you have a NASB or some of the other modern translations, Mark 11:26 is either in brackets or it's not even in your in your text. And that's because it is, again, like the passage we looked at earlier, it's not in a couple of the oldest manuscripts, but it is in the majority of manuscripts. And the verbiage here uh, only differs from the verbiage in, in Matthew 6, uh, 15, 
by the phrase uh, in heaven, where it says Father in heaven. In heaven isn't in the Matthew text. Uh, the Matthew text has no uh, no textual variant at all. So it's very clear, clearly there in Matthew, and it's, um, I would say, based on the textual evidence of the majority text, Jesus stated here, Jesus would teach things many different ways at different times in different places and not always in the same order. I mean, if any of you have listened to me for uh, five or six years, you've listened to Colossians passage. I taught Colossians, the passage we just looked at in Colossians 2. Uh, many, I've taught it many different times over the last six or seven years. And I've said pretty much the same thing, but it hasn't been identical. I've added things. I've, focused, I've applied it in different ways. Uh, this would be the same thing in Jesus' ministry as he taught the principles over and over again, sometimes in a one context, sometimes in another context, and sometimes he added things, sometimes he subtracted things, but um, that's what he taught. And so we can see the emphases that he puts on things by going to these these parallel these parallel passages. Now I want to close by looking at at a passage that where I, that I read this morning before. Um, uh, before we or while we were singing in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is where P- Peter asked Jesus, well, Lord, I understand that we're supposed to forgive one another, and, and that's okay. I see the importance of that, but how many times do we do it? I mean, there's some people who just seem to take advantage of us. Some people in our lives, they just continue to disrupt our lives with the same uh, problems, the same uh offenses over and over again. Uh, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? That seems like a good good, holy number, biblical number, seven times. And so Jesus said, should I, I mean, uh, Peter said, should I should forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said, no, not just seven times, but 70 times seven. That's 490 times. Now, Jesus isn't saying that you need to keep a ledger. <laughs> You don't get out your little book, and each time you forgive them, mark it up and say, oh, golly, finally, we hit 490. The next time, I'm not forgiving them anymore. No, this is an idiom for endlessly, always forgiving the other person. There should be without limit. And then he gives a, a parable. Now, I want you to notice how the parable begins. I alluded to this in the introduction. Therefore... The kingdom of heaven is like, two things I pointed out, kingdom of heaven is like parables always relate to the church, right, as a test. No, it always relates to Israel, always relates to Israel. He's teaching within a framework where he's talking to the Jews about the kingdom. Second thing is that when the kingdom is postponed because they rejected the the kingdom message, he's talking about principles that that are in effect during that interim period until the kingdom finally comes in. At this point, they really don't understand much about the church, although just earlier in this in this passage, uh, Jesus uses the term term church for the first time in the gospel. But but it also has the idea of assembly, so the fact that he's alluding to a future institution probably went right past uh, the disciples at this particular point. 
So he's talking about this principle of forgiveness. He uses this this illustration that there's a king who is owed a probably the equivalent of a billion dollars, 10,000 talents. 10,000 was one of the largest numbers that they would use. Talents is a, a talent was worth an enormous amount of money. A talent of gold would be worth worth almost a king's ransom at that time. And so it would be the equivalent of having to pay back a, a, a debt you you just couldn't pay back. It would be an unreasonable amount of money to expect somebody to pay back. And so this one steward uh, owes this enormous amount of debt that if he, were, he gave him everything he made for the rest of his life, he'd never pay it back. And so the master is going to sell him with his wife and his children because that's the only way he's going to get any kind of repayment is to sell them and uh, get something for 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 uh, at least something in, in payment. And the servant just begs him to have patience and to that he'll eventually pay it back. Now the king knows he'll never pay it back, but but there's something about the way that this servant uh, begs him to 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 let him stay that he he responds. The king responds, and he doesn't just respond by saying, "Okay, I'll let you stay." and work off the debt, but he cancels the debt completely. He releases him and forgives him the debt in verse 27. That's a literal use of the word. He just cancels the debt completely. So this servant has just been forgiven, this enormous debt he could never pay back, and he goes out, and one of the other servants owes him just a small amount, the equivalent of a day's wage, owes him four, five, six hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, something like that, something that can be paid back probably within a year. And so this uh, fellow servant comes to him and begs that he would be patient with him, that he'll pay it all back. But the servant that's just been forgiven the enormous amount refuses to to forgive the debt of this or, or even to let him work it off and has him cast into debtor's prison. So he treats him very harshly, not graciously at all. And the other servants are all naturally and uh, correctly upset about this and tell uh, the, the king. And the king, the master, is uh, uh, upset about it, calls the servant a wicked servant, and uh, rebukes him for not forgiving the very small debt owed to him and then turns him over for punishment. Now, some people try to make every detail in a parable uh, walk on all fours and make sense, and that's not the way parables work. Uh, you can't go come along here in verse 34, which says, The master was angry, delivered him to the torturers. Who are the torturers? You know, there's some people who've used this to refer to some sort of purgatory. There's no purgatory in the New Testament. This servant has already been forgiven. He's not having to work off his debt anymore. It's already forgiven. That's analogous to the believer who's already forgiven. He is the the, the Jesus is just in, in verse 34. Jesus is just being dramatic and using hyperbole to emphasize. Yes, there are going to be consequences to the believer who doesn't forgive another believer for his sin against him. We're to deal with them in grace and in kindness and in love. Otherwise, there will be consequences, and God will bring divine discipline into your life, both now and at the judgment seat of Christ, perhaps. There will be uh, loss of rewards. So that's the emphasis there. But again, what Jesus is emphasizing is the importance of, of forgiving one another. This isn't something optional. It's not something that is 
separate and distinct from our ongoing walk with the Lord in terms of experiencing forgiveness for sin, 1 John 1, 9, but that it's related to it. Now, the one, one caveat I want to put on this is that there's a distinction between forgiveness and consequences. God often forgives us, and he completely wipes out the consequences. We do many things. We commit many sins, and God graciously, for which I am very grateful, does not lower the boom on us for those sins. He doesn't do any, seem to do anything. They, 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 he just, we, we confess the sin, that's it. Other times, when we sin, we confess the sin, God forgives us, but we still have to reap the consequences for those sins. That's what happened with David after the sin with Bathsheba. There were four different consequences to that sin, the first of which was the loss of the child. The other consequences had to do with problems that developed within his own family and unintended consequences that were the result of his uh, lies and his licentiousness and his adultery with, with Bathsheba. And so there are natural consequences to sin, and God allows us to experience some of those as part of divine discipline. Then at other times, he increases additional negative consequences in addition to the, uh, he increases things in addition to the natural consequences in order to uh, discipline us and bring judgment into our lives for our uh, sin and disobedience. And so when we forgive others, there are times when somebody does something against us, maybe it's the first time, maybe it's the tenth time, we say, you know, it's that just, I'm not going to be able to deal with that in my life. I forgive you, but the consequence is that I don't have anything to do with you in my life. Or maybe there are other consequences. Maybe there are certain, if it's a child, I forgive you, but now there's additional boundaries until you social maturity and grow up and mature beyond those boundaries. Uh, this is how forgiveness works. It just doesn't mean we just wipe it out and act as if nothing happened. Uh, sometimes we can do that, but some things are serious, and we can't do it that way. The reality is that forgiveness in Scripture is important. It relates to our grace orientation and our humility, and if we're not forgiving one another, we're not really grace-oriented. And the two are, are uh, integrally and intimately connected, and it also relates to our ongoing fellowship with God. That's the point that Jesus is making in the Lord's Prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to reflect upon forgiveness, to see how significant your forgiveness is for us. All that you did for us at the cross, when Christ paid the penalty for our sins, that we might have uh, uh, forgiveness for our sins individually. That he paid that penalty for all in the world, and that it is applied to us when we trust in him and believe in him for eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid that penalty. Uh, sin is no longer the issue. But the reality is that because of sin, we're born spiritually dead, and we need to be born again. We need to have new life, and that comes only through trusting in Christ as Savior. And at the instant that we believe in him, we are 
uh, regenerate. We're made new. We are made alive in Christ, and we are new creatures in Christ. And we have a new destiny. We have a new family. We have uh, new assets, spiritual assets that are given us because of what Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied today, that we may apply it consistently in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.